Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 11, Relieving Manoa, Part 1. We left Napoleon last week in Milan, waiting to launch his long-awaited assault on Mantua. Drive the Austrians and their reinforcements from that heavily fortified city, and Napoleon's army would have a straight shot right to the Austrian capital of Vienna. So before we dive into this protracted struggle to win Italy, let's set the stage and give some background on Mantua and why it was so important to winning the war. Mantua is a city and commune in Lombardy, and to this day it is bounded on its north and east sides by a large lake formed by the Mincio River, hence why winning the Battle of Borghetto we talked about last week was so critical. Together with the surrounding towns of Legnago, Verona, and Peschiera, Mantua helps form what is known as the quadrilateral of fortresses. Looking at a map, this quadrilateral essentially helps to block out attacks coming from any direction, since all of its corners contain strong fortifications. Looking north to south, Mantua formed the bottom left corner, with the Mincio flowing around it from northwest to southeast. Now the lake it forms around the city is picturesque today, but at the time, especially in the warmer months of May to October, the area was essentially a marshland, and it was a breeding ground for diseases like malaria from the swaths of mosquitoes that thrived in the environment. Now this was little understood at the time, but do know it would be a key player in the conflict that's about to ensue, as disease is always a bigger killer on the battlefield than cannons or bullets. And that, of course, would be the case here with the struggle for Mantua. Anyway, the Mincio, which begins at Lake Garda, then flows into the Po River at its mouth, about 65 kilometers, or 40 miles, from its source, about 13 kilometers, or a little over 8 miles, south of Mantua. Now, this was important because many of the post tributaries, like the critically important southeast-flowing Adige River, could be used for transport throughout the Po River Basin, moving to and from many of the towns in the region to help re-fortify and resupply the area. There were also two major highway systems running east of Manua, connecting to the city of Padua via the other fortified city of Legnago, which led all the way up to the Italian border with Austria. Additionally, Many of the post tributaries provided excellent defensive positions for whoever controlled them, which, at this point in time, were the Austrians. The Austrians also benefited from the fact that they had excellent communication lines with their home country through the numerous mountain passes in the Alps, including the famous Brenner Pass. Now, with Manoa essentially serving as a vital southern choke point for supplies into and around the rest of the peninsula, its strategic importance could not be overstated. And for the attacking French, being able to control it with its access to waterways and direct links to the roads leading back to Austria was the difference between success and failure in the first Italian campaign. In fact, so important was Manoa that the Austrians would themselves besiege the city less than three years later to regain the foothold in the country. But again, that's a story for another episode. Lastly, while Manoa's strategic importance was the main focal point of the campaign, it was also a major cultural target for the French. Manoa's historical importance on Italian and European history is well documented. It was the nearest town to Virgil's birthplace, its opulence made it one of the most revered courts during the Renaissance, 
It played a significant part in the history of opera. Dan, perhaps most famously, it's where Romeo was banished to in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Lots of good stuff in Manoa. Now, I bring all of this up because in addition to capturing an important target city, the French would also be capturing one of northern Italy's cultural capitals, along with Milan and Venice. Doing so would be a great psychological victory, in addition to a military one. But for now, of course, all eyes were on the military part. Now, Austria was well aware that Manoa was going to be France's next target. No amount of Napoleonic deception could hide the fact that France was fully invested in taking it over. But if you remember at the end of last week, we mentioned how Napoleon was stretched thin across Italy, and while Manoa was Napoleon's main target, it wasn't necessarily France's main target. If you recall, we mentioned how the Directory had essentially placed a bounty on the Papal States further south, believing, and probably correctly, that they were aiding the coalition forces in turning back the French. And so, after the Battle of Borghetto, while his men continued to chase the Austrians back to Manoa, Napoleon decided to take an armed contingent down south to help pacify the Pope's realm, as well as to defend his rear. Indeed, the Austrians, still battered and bruised from their defeats at Lodi and Borghetto, were at this point trying to regroup and pose a little real danger to the French, whose numbers had soon ballooned to over 50,000 men. But those 50,000 wouldn't be of much use if they were being encircled from all directions, and Napoleon continued to write back to the directory on a daily basis, asking for more troops to help ensure that they could handle the late stages of his campaign. Napoleon was also concerned about the possibility of counter-revolts by many of the conquered regions of Italy, seemingly pacified by his supposed invincibility more so than any real military presence in these areas. He knew that any coordinated attack against one garrison could leave a massive hole in his entire Italian military. So he became obsessed with ensuring that every possible weak point was defended as best it could be, starting, of course, with the Papal States and His Holiness Pope Pius VI. Napoleon and his men reached the Papal States in mid-June of 1796, apocryphally lighting their pipes with altar candles to celebrate the occasion. Pope Pius VI, who was in his 21st year as head of the Catholic Church, had reigned for the duration of the French Revolution and ardently opposed it. He denounced the Declaration of Rights of Man and of the Citizen, he considered the revolution as an act against God, and issued two briefs to condemn the church reforms that were enacted in France. When France broke off diplomatic relations with the church in 1791, again, keeping in mind that the church is both a religious body and a country at this point, the Pope began to actively support the coalition forces in their fight against these anarchist, atheist heathens. At 79 years of age, Pius VI was also not exactly at a point in his life in which he was ready to suddenly abandon so many years of ecclesiastical conservatism. But, pontiff or not, Pius VI was also not a military commander, and his men stood little chance against a French army, which was now highly motivated, disciplined, battle-hardened, and, most importantly, paid. Napoleon and his men entered the Duchy of Modena and Reggio on June 18th, pacifying the state and later adding it to what would become the Cisalpine Republic. He then moved across the border into Bologna in the northern section of the Papal States on June 19th. While his men faced skirmishes with Papal forces throughout, they were soundly beaten, and Napoleon was able to get the men to the bargaining table in less than a week. Cognizant of their support for the coalition forces, Napoleon ensured that they paid, literally, for that decision. Signing an armistice with the Pope in late June, Napoleon was able to secure 15 million francs to be delivered back to the Directory, along with vases, pictures, busts, and statues, 
along with ancient manuscripts from librarians throughout Italy. So yeah, Napoleon is just getting right on with his looting. Napoleon also made sure to assert French authority over the conquered areas, including the Papal States. While not an ardent atheist like many of his revolutionary counterparts, indeed, Napoleon would later view the church and religion in general as a vital cog to keeping his empire together and from rebelling against him. He did view all of his conquered lands through the same iron-fisted lens. We will respect you if you live peacefully, but if you try to rebel, you will indeed be introduced to the gates of hell. A message posted to a village in the Tyrol region in northern Italy read, quote, The French army loves and respects all peoples, especially the simple and virtuous inhabitants of the mountains. But should you ignore your own interests and take up arms, we shall be terrible as the fire from heaven. Napoleon then moved further west, occupying Livorno in the Duchy of Tuscany, and expelled the British from the city, but not before he was able to seize over 12 million pounds worth of their trade goods. Now the British, obviously incensed, responded by occupying Elba, and yes, the irony isn't lost to me either, which at the time was a part of the Duchy of Tuscany, only for Napoleon to basically say, yeah, that's fine, we also violated their neutrality without a warrant, so you guys can basically have it. I'm off to Florence. And so, on July 1st, Napoleon was in Florence, arriving to adorning crowds to see the 26-year-old conquering general. He went from palace to palace, including having an audience with the Grand Duke Ferdinand III of Tuscany, younger brother of the Austrian Emperor Francis, by the way, even telling him that his brother, quote, no longer had a foot in Lombardy. Now, while not technically true, since they were still holding out in Manoa, Ferdinand was all but resigned to the fact that both he and his brother's reigns in Italy would be nearing their ends. Oh yeah, <laughs> I almost forgot to mention, Napoleon sent back works of art to France by Rubens, Raphael, Titian, Van Dyck, and Rembrandt. I mean, hey, it is Florence after all, people. Can't be leaving that gorgeous artwork in a war zone. Better off in a museum back in Paris. Now while Napoleon was busy trying to pacify central Italy, Josephine and Napoleon's brother Joseph were on their way down to Milan from Paris. Napoleon had sent for his wife on a number of occasions, but she had refused his offers to accompany him on campaign as she was in the throes of her affair with Hippolyte Charles. With some additional encouragement from Joseph, and of course being accompanied by Charles en route, Josephine arrived in Milan at the end of June. Napoleon made his way back two weeks later to greet his wife, still believing her to be pregnant, as well as to speak with Joseph about his upcoming roles as a key diplomat for the future governments in Italy. Napoleon needed someone close in his camp who he could trust, and Joseph, one year older than his brother Napoleon, fit this bill perfectly. Joseph would be sent around Italy on official business for France, negotiating treaty settlements, debt repayments, among other duties. He was also sent to Corsica to help reestablish French control of his home island, and Joseph developed a genuine capacity for being an able diplomat, and it would serve him well in the years to come as he would be made king of Naples in a few short years under Napoleon. Now, while Napoleon was happy to see his wife, he didn't have much time to spend romancing. His spy network throughout Italy, which was extensive, had provided him with intelligence that General von Wemse was on his way south from Austria with over 50,000 reinforcements, many of them taken from the Rhine campaign. Wemse himself was in command of 32,000 men, approaching Manoa from Lake Garda's eastern side, while Croatian-born General Peter von Kazdanovich approached from the west with the other 18,000. 
Now, Napoleon, understanding the situation surrounding his own manpower, knew that he needed to strike Manoa sooner than he had intended, hoping now to deal a decisive blow to the recovering troops still under Bouillieu's control. Napoleon began the siege of Manoa by requisitioning cannon from all over northern Italy and ordered Sahuye to remain outside Manoa with 10,500 men to begin the siege. The Austrians commanded 14,000 men within the city, and they were tasked with withstanding the siege until Worms' reinforcements could arrive. Napoleon then sent Massena and 15,000 troops to the eastern side of Lake Garden to help slow Worms' contingent, while General Pierre-François Saray was sent to the town of Salo to help impede the advance of Kozdanovich. Napoleon then ordered Agarro's 5,300 men to patrol the roads leading down from the east, while General Hichasinte Despinoy was put in charge of 4,700 men to protect the critical Peschiera-Verona line between the Mincio and Adige rivers. These formations resembled a rough arc shape, then in order to help protect the main goal, of course, of besieging Manoa. Now, Napoleon himself then moved throughout the Delta Basin to monitor the position of his troops and the approach of Austrians, doing so in stifling heat and with disease rampant throughout his ranks. But with the cannons positioned and the siege parallels established outside of the city, the siege of Manoa began in earnest on July 4th, 1796. The siege was, broadly speaking, broken up into four relief efforts by the Austrians to help beat back the French advance, each with its own respective battles. With the city under near constant cannon fire for three weeks, Wurmser reached the city at the end of July and began their attack in a three-pronged assault. Now first up was Kazdanovich's column. He launched his assault on General Sache and easily drove him out of Salo, though heavy fighting would continue after their retreat. Wurmser, meanwhile, chased Massena back south, routing him, and took the town of Rivoli on the banks of the Adige. Kazdanovich then continued pushing back south and took the town of Brescia, the west of Lake Garda. Now, these defeats stunned Napoleon, who had taken great care in ensuring that all of his flanks were covered to prevent such a defeat. Brescia, thought to be well behind enemy lines, was of particular note because Napoleon had sent Josephine there for her protection, believing the city to actually be safer than Milan while the siege was ongoing. The Austrians nearly captured her, and Napoleon said afterwards that, quote, Wemser shall pay dearly for those tears. Now, these quick victories for Austria also led to Napoleon needing to move troops away from Manoa to help fortify the broken lines. With Rivoli now taken, the communication lines between the French forces at Verona and Milan were completely cut, meaning that resupplying the front would be difficult and, well, dangerous. So, Napoleon repositioned Sahuye's men and lifted the siege, leaving all 179 guns there as they were too heavy to move quickly. He then dumped all the ammunition into the lake so as to render it useless once the Austrians approached. Now essentially split in two, Napoleon knew that taking on Wurms' larger force would be, well, suicidal. So he decided to take on Kazdanovich's first, knock him out, and then focus on a new strategy to take on Wurms. Their first goal? To retake Brescia. Napoleon told Massena, quote, Whatever happens, and however much it costs, we must sleep in Brescia tomorrow. Now, Napoleon understood that the ensuing fight for Brescia would not be easy. The weather was stifling hot, the terrain was mountainous, and many of his men were sick. But he knew that he could defeat Kazdanovich, who was now completely outnumbered. Napoleon's reinforcements had totaled 30,000, and they would meet the Austrians on their way to Brescia in the small town of Lanaro. Following some skirmishes, the Austrians seized Lanato on July 31st, but were soon ejected by a small counterattack from the French. 
leaving a single division to the east to fend off Remzer. Napoleon's assembled force would overwhelm Kazdanovich's men in the ensuing days. After Kazdanovich's forces regrouped near the town of Gavardo, he ordered several columns to advance and attack Lenato on August 3rd, which they did, and they recaptured the town once again. Napoleon, though, was undeterred, and he ordered a counterattack by sending General Despinois troops from Brescia to attack Kazdanovich's right flank in Gavardo, General Sohe to attack the left at Salo, with Dalamier's men following quickly in between. Now, this forced the majority of the Austrian forces to be placed on the defensive, meaning that a single brigade in Lenato was left all alone to defend it, and Napoleon planned to crush it. And so on August 3rd, just as the Austrian brigade was driving the small French contingent still present in the town of Lenato, Napoleon, with the marching band playing, arrived and ordered his line into a bayonet charge with his newly deployed tactic of Battalion Carré. Simply put, this formation calls for a diamond, which can easily be rotated when attacked. Thus, if, for example, the left flank were attacked, the left flank would then concentrate their fire on the attackers, fixing them in place, while the other vanguards and rear guard could swing around, envelop them, and crush them. Now, while he wasn't the first to propose such a formation, it was Napoleon who first put it into use in battle, and it would be one of his signature military tactics that he would use to devastating effect throughout the Napoleonic Wars. Stunned, the Austrians, now completely outnumbered and surrounded, then retreated back right into Napoleon's cavalry brigade, where they surrounded Kazdanovich and ordered them to surrender. They were in full retreat the next day, moving back north to rejoin Wurms' forces near Lake Garda. Now, Wormser had the men to try and meet Napoleon head-on, but he knew that with Lenato now lost and their positions tenuous, he needed to redirect them to Manoa to prepare for a new siege. In a final calamity, one of Kazdanovich's units, totaling 3,000 men, got cut off and wound up marching back to Lenato. Napoleon, who only had 1,200 men at his disposal at the time, bluffed and told their commanding officer that he had his entire army just outside the town. Quote, If in eight minutes his division has not laid down its arms, I would not have spared a man, he told them. It would not be until the Austrians were completely disarmed that they realized that they had been duped. Indeed, not only could they have retaken the town, they could have captured Napoleon and dealt a severe blow to the French forces in Italy. But, again, Napoleon's masterful use of deception throughout all of the chaos led to another victory. But Napoleon, once again, had little time to celebrate this victory. With Lonato now in French hands and the brescia manoa line of communications reestablished, Wermser was on the move and positioned with between twenty to 25,000 men on Napoleon's right flank in Solferino, just south of Lonato. Napoleon, commanding around 30,000 from around the area, planned to draw him north for the battle, but, you guessed it, he feigned withdrawal. Wermser took the bait, and they would meet on August 5th in nearby Castiglione. The Battle of Castiglione began at 9 a.m. when Napoleon heard cannon fire, incorrectly assuming it was the Austrians, but actually it was his own men attacking an Austrian baggage train. Nevertheless, it was all the pretext Napoleon needed to make his main assault. Napoleon sent Massena and Agarro into attack, while he ordered General Marmont to take a 12-gun battery to Monte Medalono, whose high ground allowed for redoubts and small artillery fire. Marmont was to siege Medellano while heavy fighting continued along the rest of the lines. After several hours of intense fighting, Dagajo took the town of Solferino just in time for backup to arrive to help reinforce the French lines while also breaking the Austrian one. Wurmser, 
with losses mounting and now being surrounded on all sides by multiple French armies, was forced to retreat, thus ending the first attempted relief of the siege of Manawa. Vermser was actually fortunate that the French, exhausted from three days of marching and fighting two crucial battles, were unable to catch up and completely annihilate the remainder of his forces. But now, with the Austrians in full retreat and their first relief of failure, Napoleon resumed the siege of Manawa five days later. Now, while the Austrians still had 16,000 men inside the city walls, only about 12,000 were fit for service, and those that were had just made the long march back from the mountains and valleys that they had spent a week in brutal fighting. Wermser also sent thousands of his troops out of the city who were suffering from diseases, further cutting into his defenses just as the French were preparing to resume their siege. But despite the resounding victories for the French, Napoleon was only able to blockade the city, as he had lost numerous heavy guns throughout the campaign, and he was unable to recover those that his men had left behind after they lifted the siege for the first time. And so, as the Austrians gathered their strength and prepared for a second relief effort of Manwa, Napoleon used the lull in the action to allow his own men a chance to rest. Many of his commanding officers were wounded, and if the French wanted to prepare for a second assault, they needed their command structure as tip-top as possible. And Napoleon also used the lull in the action to write back to the Directory, who now, having received word of his victories, were beginning to realize that it was becoming impossible to contain Napoleon's rising celebrity. And, as we mentioned before, so bogged down were they in the stalemate in the Rhine campaign that they were becoming overly reliant on Napoleon to perform well in Italy. But because of this, they knew that their grip on him was quickly loosening. A complete victory in Italy, and, well, anything was on the table. On the table now for Napoleon, however, was refocusing his effort on Manoa. As August was coming to a close, he received word that the Austrians indeed were planning a second relief to break the French siege. Receiving some reinforcements from the Army of the Alps, Napoleon now had over 50,000 men at his disposal to withstand any subsequent Austrian assault. Wermser had three possible routes to use his men to help relieve the city for a second time, down the west side of Lake Garda, or through the cities of Rivoli and Verona, respectively. Now, once he could ascertain which route Wermser would take, he hoped to divide his men, much like he had done to Kazdanovich's forces, take out the weaker one, and then crush the main army. Now, while he had some time, Napoleon made sure to hoard as much grain, food, and brandy as possible for his men. He knew that any subsequent relief effort made by the Austrians would be more drawn out, and he needed to ensure that his men were well supplied, especially as winter was quickly approaching. By the beginning of September, Napoleon now had a clear understanding of Wermse's intentions. Wermse would make his way down the Valagarina Valley of the Adige River, bypassing Rivoli and Verona to assist in reinforcing Manoa, which was now under siege for just under a month by some 10,000 French troops, with an additional 6,000 reserve patrolling the nearby areas for any potential rebellions. Napoleon was hoping that he could receive some relief himself from the armies of the Rhine, but with French forces continuing to stall along the German frontier, it was clear that if Napoleon met Wermse head-on, he would be significantly outnumbered, with the northern frontier completely unable to be captured. The Austrians understood this as well believing that the French were incapable of reacting to such a strong force, if for no other reason than by sheer numbers alone. But, once again, this proved to be a serious miscalculation. While Napoleon knew he could not meet the entire army head-on, he could defeat them in small pockets, especially since the Austrians were split into two main corps coming down the valley. Napoleon left General Kilmaine's 8,000 men to continue the blockade of Manoa with another 2,000 reserve should their attack fail. 
He then ordered General of Division Claude-Henri Belgrand de Verbois and 10,000 men to march north on the west side of Lake Garda. General Massena with 13,000 and General Agarro with another 10,000 men to march on the east side of the Adige Valley. With these three divisions now heavily concentrated, Napoleon then marched from the town of Rovereto, northeast of Lake Garda, and about 24 kilometers or 15 miles south of Trento, and met Wurms's advance guard on September 4th, led by Austrian General Paul Davidovich. The Austrians had planned to split their ranks into three divisions themselves throughout the valley in order to counter any French threat, but Napoleon bucked their expectations. His three divisions now greatly outnumbered the isolated Davidovich, and Napoleon crushed them. Gaining the critical high ground of nearby Marco, the French fought the Austrians for several hours in a grueling struggle. But against heavy numbers from Massena and General of Brigade Jean-Joseph Bijon, the Austrian lines folded and they had to retreat once again. Losing 3,000 men to the French 750, the Austrians were now forced to flee north while the French were in full pursuit. The Battle of Rovereto was the first in a string of small battles over the next week. All of them French victories. The first came at Caliano, just north of Rovereto. The Austrian defenses were weak, and the French attacked them while they were literally eating their breakfast, breaking their ranks and forcing another retreat. Then, two days later, on September 7th, the French attacked the Austrians in the eastern city of Primalano. Primalano was well defended by the surrounding geography, forming a natural U-shape by the two sides of the valley with a little distance between the valley and the high mountains. Now, the Austrians should have been well-positioned to resist the French advance, but once again were met head-on by a determined French force. In the afternoon, numerous columns of light French infantry moved up the sides of the dividing mountain, wading through fast-flowing waters from the river Brenta, and, undeterred, charged at the Austrians. Stunned, out of position, and confused at what to do, the Austrians, for the third time in less than a week, retreated down the Brenta River to the town of Bossano. But Napoleon, knowing he needed to continue the offensive, continued to chase them down. On the next day, September 8th, Napoleon and his men vet Wurms' forces in Bassano. It was the first time that Napoleon had faced Wurms head-on in battle, and he would, again, inflict another defeat on his older counterpart. Now, despite Wurms' surprise that the French were able to pursue them so quickly, he was able to gather a strong force of 20,000 men as they retreated into Bassano. Napoleon, though, was unfazed. He sent Massena down the west bank of the Brenta River, opposite the side in which Bassano rested, and Agajo down the east side to flank the city. Wurms' rear guard, led by old friend Kuzdanovich, was repeatedly assaulted by the two divisions and were then pursued by Joachim Yocha's cavalry, sending Kuzdanovich's men into a full retreat. Wurms then attempted to send three brigades, one to each side of the river and one into Bassano itself, to help reinforce the line, but to no avail. General Alain then led a successful charge into Bassano and broke the Austrian line, sending them, you guessed it, into a full retreat. Now, most retreated to the east, but a small division did retreat south, hoping to make it to Manoa under the command of Sabettendorf. The French suffered just over 400 killed, while the Austrians lost 600. But critically, the French seized over 30 artillery pieces and over 200 ammunition wagons. The Austrians, suffering two more minor defeats at Legnago and the Palace of La Favorita just outside Manoa, now were on the run back to the fortified city. By mid-September, the Wemser was forced into the city. 
Now, the Austrians were obviously completely defeated militarily, and there's no question that their forces were demoralized. But in a sense, they did kind of achieve their main goal to reinforce Manoa. And for Napoleon, he was successful in driving off the Austrian advance, but he was back to square one. He was unable to link the armies of Italy to the ones in Germany, and Manoa was still not reduced to rubble. In fact, now that Wemser was able to make it back to the city, Manoa now had a much larger garrison to withstand a French attack. But the Austrians had just lost 11,000 men in the process and were still being completely outclassed by Napoleon in the field. Furthermore, the Austrians that were stationed to Manoa, though larger in number than in August, were beleaguered. Wurmser sent small expeditions around the city to forage for food and supplies, constantly under small arms barrage by the French patrolling the area. Then as September came to a close, the second relief of Manoa had ended, and General Kilmaine had reinvested the fortress city. But the French were well aware that the Austrians would still not capitulate. And while both sides recovered, a third attempt was being planned for the late fall. So that concludes this week's episode. But next week, we will see the final two relief efforts by the Austrians to ward off the French and maintain their foothold in Italy. Napoleon, meanwhile, would continue with the assault of Manoa and to push the Austrians out of Italy. Then we'll talk about the ensuing peace, what it meant for France's future, and for Napoleon's destiny. Because next week, we're truly, really ending the war of the First Coalition. <laughs>